everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. We are so excited to be here with you today. We have a great guest for you, someone who was praised a lot in last week's episode, Ivan Kachinovsky. Some of you may remember last week when we spoke about Canada's uh, Ukrainian Nazi gate with Mark Ames and Yasha Levine and Lev Galinkin. They kept talking about how hard Ivan had worked on this project, how he had exposed the identity of this Ukrainian Nazi. So I I realized that we should have Ivan on to talk about not just this incident, but also really important things that he's been working on. He has a really, I think, important insight into the war in Ukraine and also what happened in Maidan Square, and we'll get into that. So before I start, though, I want to welcome everyone and ask people to please hit the like. This is a way that you just show your gratitude. Hit the like button, share, and subscribe. And to subscribe, you hit subscribe and then press the bell. If you can become Patreon members, that's great at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And last week's episode, I gave you some of the chat that I did with Yasha Levine, Mark Ames, and Lev Galinkin, but the Patreon has a lot more. And we get into all sorts of really scary things that the CIA did and the Pope did with hiding war criminals. It's fascinating. It was really fun to talk with those three guys. And you basically get twice as much content when you're a Patreon supporter because you get an extended interview every week. Sometimes you get totally extra interviews that we don't even show you at all. So patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Make sure you do that. We're going to bring on our first guest. And again, as I said, I'm really, really excited to have him on. He is someone who, again, was praised last week by our guests for being so conscientious and so hardworking when it comes to kind of exposing the alt-right, the far-right, the neo-Nazi right, or maybe just the Nazi right in Ukraine. He teaches at the School of Political Studies and Conflict Studies and Human Rights Program at the University of Ottawa. He was visiting scholar at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian at Harvard University. He's the author of Cleft Countries, Regional Political Divisions and Cultures in Post-Soviet Ukraine and Moldova, and co-author of Historical Dictionary of Ukraine. So, without any further ado, let us welcome Ivan Kachinovsky. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It is a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. So we're going to get into everything that happened with Yaroslav Hunka, and of course you exposed that story, and we're talking about the 98-year-old volunteer of the SS who received a standing ovation in the Canadian House of Commons. But I actually want to start off asking you some kind of more personal questions about your biography and your role as a dissident. So can you tell us a little bit about your academic trajectory and also how you've been a dissident and in which different contexts you've been a dissident? Uh, yes, I think this is also maybe important to understand as a background to this story, because I was born in Western Ukraine. And uh, my family was not involved in any political parties. They were not involved in any politics. 
but uh, but because of the politics, they they affected their life. And my grandmother lived in five countries without moving to any country on her own. My mother lived in four countries without moving on her own as well. So your grandmother lived in in four countries without moving, or two? In five. In five countries, and your mother in in four. Four. So they didn't move. It was the borders that moved around them. Yes, exactly. And in one case, they were actually expelled from uh, from uh, Poland, which is now Poland, home area of Poland, to Western Ukraine, to Volhynia region, uh, our city of Lutsk, in former Czech colony. So they settled there. And actually, I found interesting documents. They, they were originally sent to Melitopol in uh, the Polish region, which is now in the middle of this uh, counteroffensive. <laughs> so this is like. So basically, kind of, even if you're not interested in politics, you were affected by the politics uh, directly, and not just moving in the country, in the, you know, just for the sake of moving, but changing borders. My uh, grandparents lost their house during World War II and all the property. They became refugees in World War II. They faced execution by the Nazi, Nazis, basically by giving bread um, for my gran- grandfather was had to dig his own grave. Near, next to his house, uh, because he gave a, a loaf of bread to uh, to prisoner of war from nearby camp, uh, who was Soviet prisoner of war. And at the time, he was this was caught by Nazis, and they uh, wanted to execute my grandfather and this prisoner of war. So the, the, he dig his own grave, but Nazis did not execute uh, my grandfather. They executed soldier or POW in the in the basically in the land next to house of my gran, uh, grandfather. So this is just one example. In another example of um, why this was important. Do you know why they decided not to execute him in the end? They said this, they're going to do this next time. So this was like a warning uh, to do this. In another time, like I, when I grew up, I had a story uh, told by my mother. Then uh, next to house of my grandfather also, there was a big uh, missile which, which uh, fall, fell down. And uh, just a few meters from the house of my grandfather, but it never exploded. So I thought this is like very strange. You see missile during World War II. And until I did research later, and I found that this was actually not just single missile. There were, uh, there were test sites for, uh, for these missiles uh, created by Werner von Braun, who became chief of NASA moon program. And uh, during World War II, he was in charge of uh, this V-2 uh, Nazi missile program, and they tested missiles basically by launching missiles from uh, in Poland area to uh, basically next to civilian areas, and a lot of missiles fall, fall in in populated areas, and this is and this is also very interesting because the launch site for these missiles were, were nearby from uh, from training ground for SS Galicia division, so this is just one another example, and my grandfather was also put for execution by Nazis, basically, uh, as, as a kind of reprisal. So he was just diving, uh, so he was going to, again, to just uh, for his uh, business, uh, again, and he was caught by, by Germans, and he was put he was put for execution as a, as basically as a reprisal. They would have to kill civilians for reprisal for actions of partisans and so on, and they kill each, like, 10 person or each fifth person and um, my grandfather was lucky because the person next to him was selected and executed. So this is like, so, and he was not involved in any war at all, no involvement, but the civilians, they suffered 
So kind of when I grew up listening to these stories and I became interested in politics and especially like conflicts. And this is why I wanted to study them. But in, in the Soviet Union, it was not possible to do this. It kind of, if you did not have any recommendation from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So I wanted to apply to, to study international relations, international politics, but um, you had to have a recommendation from the regional uh, committee of the Communist Party. And I was not involved in any politics, uh, like any, I was not a party member. I was not activist in, in Communist League, so I could not get any recommendation. And, uh, and uh, so I could not even apply. And in, I remember in um, 1985, when I became student in another university, economics university, my head of local party committee, Communist Party committee, asked me if uh, why I'm not joining Communist Party because I um, because uh, I am interested in politics, and I replied to her that uh, I am, I did not yet decide which party to join, and she told me like we just have one party, there is <laughs> there is no other party to join, so this is like uh, that's why it was very kind of important uh, for me to study like uh, politics and international relations, but it was not possible. And actually, uh, at the time, uh, at the same faculty of international relations in, in Kiev University, which is, was very small and only faculty in Ukraine, in Soviet Ukraine, there were two students who became politicians, like um, Petro Poroshenko, future president of Ukraine, and Mikhail Saakashvili, who became president of Georgia. And now they are very active, like, <laughs> kind of as uh, anti-communist, basically uh, kind of pro-Western politicians. But they actually got recommendations from from uh, from uh, Communist Party uh, to get uh, to get accepted, and they were members of the Soviet elite. So this is just one example. And uh, in 1988, I went to first demonstration, first first opposition demonstration, which was held in Kiev, and this was again uh, the first legal uh, demonstration, uh, uh, not, not by the Communist Party, or it was first opposition demonstration, which was held in uh, in Kiev during the Soviet rule, like since 1922. So this, and all previous, previous demonstrations were, uh, attempts to hold such demonstrations led to arrest of participants. So this is, and just a few dozen people attended this uh, this rally, uh, again, which I remember, and, and so on. And, and, and this is actually was uh, quite unbelievable. And I participated in all demonstrations, all rallies which were held in Kiev when I was student, even before this became how to say, um, um, kind of mainstream and, and uh, specifically a lot of people who now claim that they were for uh, opposition, they never been um, party activists and so on. Actually, uh, this is uh, totally kind of incorrect because they changed their views and, and now they became kind of supporters for Ukrainian independence and so on. But uh, in fact, they were actually very different. And just to finally mention another interesting uh, and relevant story. When I was a student, and uh, at the Economics University in Kyiv in 1990, I uh, had to uh, write final thesis. And I, sent, I, I submitted my proposal to, uh, my, uh, to my department, and they told me that they're gonna expel me from the university if I would write my, my final thesis. Because they said, uh, I, I said, I said I'm gonna write in Ukrainian, and they said, this is not a problem, you can write in Chinese. But the problem was that I said I'm gonna write using Western economic series, and uh, that I'm going to write using Max Weber a series, and they said this is not acceptable. You need to write what basically Soviet ideology would be. So you, you couldn't talk about Max Weber too much? Yeah, you, you cannot even mention.
that's why it was, I would be expelled from universities. So they told me for this. So I wrote anyway. I had to go to the library. I found a book published by classical economists, British economists, I had Marshall in 1922. And I had to cut pages because nobody opened this book, which was in the library since 1922. So this is, I, and I wrote in my uh, thesis again that in Ukrainian, that a Soviet system is bound to collapse because this is inefficient. So again, uh, they did not expel me from university because there was a perestroika and changes already, but uh, they gave me C, like for my final thesis, so I cannot go to graduate school in the Soviet Union. So I had to wait until the Soviet collapse to go to graduate education, which I got in the United States later. So what did you do between undergraduate and graduate school? Uh, this is also very interesting. I, I became an economist in a financial department in Lutsk, uh, in Lutsk district. But this is also a very interesting story because I was working for uh, on financial compensation for people who were expelled uh, to Siberia, basically, on political uh, as political persecution. And many of them, if not most, were, uh, were family members of UN and UPA. So the, this is basically, they were expelled for being kind of family members of UNOPA, may often young children, and they were expelled to Siberia, to Kazakhstan, and so on. And they... Can you explain what UNEPA is? Yes, so this is OUN, Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which was then led by Bandera, the Pan Bandera, which is an organization which collaborated with Nazi Germany and was far-right organization, or even like semi-fascist or fascist organization, which used they used and they invented their slogan, uh, Glory to Ukraine, Glory to the Heroes, which is now became, again, uh, used in Ukraine and also in the West. But this was slogan based on, and greeting based on a German, on Nazi greeting. Uh, they also used hand salute, which was, again, uh, similar to Nazi salute. And, uh, and they, in 1943, they created UPA, which was the Ukrainian insurgent army, specifically a kind of partisan force, and uh, which was responsible for um, ethnic cleansing and mass murder of ethnic uh, Polish population of Volhynia, uh, which is my, uh, again, uh, native region in Ukraine. So they killed uh, ab about 50,000 Poles in Volhynia and Galicia region. And, um, and they were also fighting against Soviet, uh, uh, Soviet authorities and uh, killing many Ukrainians who were Soviet, uh, supporters of Soviet government, including teachers, for instance, many teachers were killed, and any civilians, and so on. And, um, and uh, so Soviet uh, government responded with brutal suppression, and they basically expelled anybody who was connected to UNUPA, like family members, entire family members were expelled to Siberia, and so on. And uh, anybody who gave support, anybody who gave food them, or like uh, put them to, kind of, gave them shelter, and so on, were expelled to Siberia, and... Um, and their all the property were, were, were taken out, was taken out by the Soviet government uh, again under Stalin, Joseph Stalin. And um, after they were rehabilitated in 1990, uh, they received compensation. So, so a lot of them came from Siberia, from Kazakhstan, and I was totally surprised because I expected to be they would be very hard, how to say, very kind of nationalistic. But in fact, they became assimilated. They spoke Russian. Many of them spoke Russian. And they have no kind of affinity for UN and UPA, uh, almost with one exception. I think one uh, who was um, um, became activist 
full in the pub, but they basically were now almost like Russians, even though they were, came from Ukraine. Okay, we have to do a whole other show on that because that's really fascinating. Um, and then you jumping ahead a little bit, um, you are now, how are you seeing today in Ukraine? Uh, I think uh, this is uh, in Ukraine, uh, this is basically very interesting because um, I think now there is uh, there, there are almost nothing in Ukraine about me, with exception of uh, now uh, this campaign, uh, this story about Hunka and uh, became popular. So there were like accusations of of me again, a campaign against me in uh, in the media, some media in Galicia region of Western Ukraine uh, accused me basically of of, of <laughs> basically of spreading Russian propaganda about Galicia division. And uh, so this is, and some of them even uh, uh, send me uh, kind of death threats and so on on social media. So this is like kind of now kind of a situation because any anything which goes against uh, narrative kind of uh, is basically is uh, considered to be unacceptable in Ukraine. But I was given a lot of interviews in the media of Ukraine, kind of based on my research, even before I found actually that uh, Ukrainian mathematician uh, here, who was, uh, again, one of the leading Ukrainian mathematicians who was arrested and sent to Gulag and patient Gulag, had his, uh, his mathematical uh, publications used by, and translated by American inventor of electronic digital computer, in, uh, again, who was also a mathematician and created his computer to speed up solution of mathematical and statistical equations. So this was kind of useful and uh, gave a lot of interviews, publications. But after I published Maidan Massacre uh, study in uh, 2000, uh, after I did Maidan Massacre study in 2014, all my property, all my, ho my house, land, and all other property was seized by the local government, by the judges, on orders from the top in recreation for this. So I now cannot travel to Ukraine because of, um, again, because all the property was taken away so your property was taken away because you wrote certain things about the Maidan massacre. Yes, exactly. Okay, and we're going to get into that now. But just to summarize what you said, so people are angry that you talked about who Yaroslav Hunka was. And again, we're going to get to that at the end of the episode. By the way, if you're watching this now, you get to see the whole thing. If you watch this later to see the full chat with Yvonne, you'll go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. But so you've gotten into trouble for both of those things, but in the case of the Maidan massacre, which is really a testament to how good your research is, which we're going to get into right now, you wrote things that were unpopular enough that they seized your land, your home. Yes. What was the justification? So this was totally made up. Again, this actually judges uh, uh, issued totally opposite decision. of They first recognized me as the owner of this house, of the land, and everything. But later... Um, Actually, they, uh, I was told by my lawyers who had connections in the, in the local courts that they, there was a phone call to the judge to issue such decision. And, uh, and there was no evidence at all. All the evidence was in uh, kind of in supporting of, basically, I, I provided testimony of my 12 neighbors who live, uh, again, who know me. This is like house which I used. I traveled from Canada, from the United States each summer. My mother lived there. I, I was born there. Again, it was actually bought by my, my grandmother and my grandfather uh, after, from the Czechs who were, again, in Czech colony, who were expelled to Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia. And, uh, and um, after my grandparents and my mother were expelled from Poland, 
as part of, uh, again, ethnic cleansing in 1945. So uh, I had all the documents, but again, this did not matter. The, the decision was issued specifically by, uh, by the judge on order from, uh, the, from the top, and specifically there is a strong connection between these judges' kind of decision, because the judge who was um, in, her, in charge of this uh, case, um, kind of in charge of this court system in my Berlin region, he was connected to the oligarch uh, who was basically oligarch in uh, kind of from Kolomoisky clan, and at the time, uh, Maidan snipers, some of the Maidan snipers from Parade organization became members of his party, and um, and he was also governor of the Odessa region, kind of which, um, and he financed Azov, Neonazi uh, Azov battalion and the right sector. So this is, so for me, basically, kind of, it was uh, kind of a very clear case of retaliation, and I still cannot return my house, even so I have all the lawyers, all the documents, so basically, this is justice system in Ukraine and a retaliation for academic research for my my study of my Dan massacre. Okay, so obviously this is an important topic of research. One example of that being that you were retaliated against over it. So can you tell us why what happened in Maidan Square is so important and what you allege happened and how that differs from the official story? Uh, yes, uh, and I published this already in uh, peer review journal uh, articles. I had two peer review journal articles published on this uh, research, and I have also a new article, peer review journal article, which um, which is now in final stages. And it received very positive reviews from peer uh, from peer reviewers, anonymous, and I submitted just small changes. So I'm waiting for any uh, any time, any any day for a decision. Uh, if they're gonna publish, but um, I think it's uh, not. It's very difficult to be certain. But uh, based on my research, I think evidence is beyond any reasonable doubt. Uh, I think this is the case when there is no even debate um, because evidence is so clear that uh, this uh, massacre was not uh, conducted by snipers or by uh, police. For people who are watching who don't know what the massacre is, can you just set up what what's happening at this point? Yeah, this was uh, this massacre was crucial uh, massacre in Ukraine in 2014 in February of 2014 during Euromaidan mass protest in Kyiv and in Ukraine, uh, I, and, uh, which became protest against the Yanukovych government, which was pro-Russian government in Ukraine. So after the peaceful protest, which took place, kind of restarted in at the end of November of 2013 became violent after uh, because of violent organizations participation uh, this escalated to the massacre of Maidan protesters and the police on February 20th of 2014 and this massacre led to overthrow of the Yanukovych government because he was immediately blamed for this massacre not only by the Ukrainian by opposition Maidan opposition but also by the media in Ukraine and the entire world by the Biden administration. And Biden, in his memoirs, he said that he called Yanukovych on the day of the massacre and blamed him for this massacre and told Yanukovych that basically he he, he have to leave not only his presidency, but also have to leave Ukraine. And for this reason, Yanukovych fled because he also was subjected to assassination attempt. And this led to a change of the government. And, uh, and this massacre basically led, escalated to Russian annexation of Crimea and in retaliation for this, and also to civil war in Donbass in, in eastern Ukraine. So just to slow you down a second, sorry. 
So there's the massacre. The massacre leads to overthrow of Yanukovych's government. Right, the overthrow of Yanukovych's government, and then that leads to to Russia basically to Russia annexing the Crimea region of southern Ukraine, which was a Russian region and a separatist region of Russian Ukraine. And that's in part because they imposed or they passed some anti-Russian language laws under the post-Yanukovych government? Uh, yes, but I think in the most important it was because of the change of the government, because right. this led to, uh, to the government, which was, uh, again, anti-Russian government. Pro-Western government. Yes. It defeated, right? So the pro-Russian, in quotes, guy leaves, the pro-Western guy comes in, and then Putin annexes Crimea. And then what was the next thing that it led to, did you say? I think this is also very important because Crimea was populated by ethnic Russians, so they, they were also like supporting the Russian for a long time. And in Crimea, there was uh, basically separatist rebellion against the Ukrainian government, new Maidan government, which was supported by Russia, and which led uh, escalated to civil war in Donbass. And I just want to say, not that this should matter because you're a very like esteemed academic, but I just want people to know because this has become so politicized. You're Ukrainian. You're not. Uh, you don't. You're not a Russian. Ukraine. You're not ethnically Russian. Again, I don't even. I feel weird even mentioning that. I just want people to know that because I know automatically people are going to be like, "Oh, he must be a Putinist. Uh, he must be a Putin propagandist." So, I just want people to know that. Yes, I'm ethnically. I'm ethnic Ukrainian from Western Ukraine, which is most anti-Russian region. And and I mentioned already, I attended first opposition demonstrations in Ukraine when it was just attended by uh, like just a few dozen people. And this was by Ukrainian Helsinki group. And at, the, at this demonstration, uh, one uh, one female participant tried to unveil Ukrainian flag, and she was arrested by undercover agents. So this is, you know, and, and I have no connection to Russia at all. And I supported uh, European Union membership of Ukraine when it was not even an issue. So I published uh, publish editorials in the Kiev Post, in, in Ukrainian media, for Ukrainian membership of the European Union because I believe this would be only a viable way for Ukraine to become democratic and to avoid breakup and to avoid a civil war. But I think this did not happen. And I also, I also, I always supported democracy. I always support human rights. And this is why I do research about all these topics. There is no, I have no link to Russia. And again, I, I've never been to Russia. Yeah, I've been to Russia once in 1992 going to conference um, in Estonia, academic conference in Estonia. So this was just on my way to conference and back. Uh, yeah, and so, so this is the only time I've been to Russia. So I have no connection to Russia at all. I do not support Russian invasion of Ukraine. I consider this illegal. But again, I'm doing this research. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying what I uh, found based on evidence and not based on politics. I think this is kind of, uh, kind of just ridiculous to claim that anybody who says something, again, uh, not, which is not supported by a mainstream uh, narrative is actually kind of linked to Putin and so on. This is, uh, for me, uh, kind of very similar, similar to what I found during Great Terror in, in the Soviet Union, when, when people were, uh, millions of people were arrested and accused of being spies and uh, members of terrorist organization because they visited like Western countries even uh, 20 years before or they have correspondence with people in Poland or, or kind of Germany or, or Italy or United States or had family relatives and so on. So this was kind of similar evidence. They were arrested 
and, uh, and denounces as enemies of the people without any actual evidence. And I think the same claims are just ridiculous and unacceptable for, uh, again, any rational discussion. So, okay, so firmware says, please clarify how we know who initiated the massacre, which you were doing until I rudely interrupted you to preempt the Putin talking points accusations that we're going to get. Uh, yes, I think this was also important because for me, this is like, like you know, uh, I just... That was an amazing chat and what a great guest. And I had so many more questions and he'll definitely come back. At least I hope he will. If you want to hear the full interview with Yvonne, which you will, make sure you go to Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. But I have another breaking news story for you that I want to make sure that you guys heard about. And I'm going to bring on to the show for a very short chat and update Zoe Alexandra, who is the co-editor of the People's Dispatch. And she's going to tell us about something that just happened now that's related to another story that we covered. So welcome, Zoe. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much for coming. Tell us where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm tuning in from Midtown Manhattan, just finishing up the workday here. <laughs> so where you were just at a, a protest, right? Can you, can you tell us what you were protesting and uh, what the story is and how it relates to the disgusting hit piece that we covered before that the New York Times uh, wrote against people like Code Pink and the People's Forum and Tricontinental? Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, yeah, we were just outside of the New York Times offices, which, if people didn't know, is in Midtown Manhattan on 8th Avenue. Um, And essentially, as you said, the New York Times published this hit piece in August. Yesterday in India, this morning in... (laughs) you know, the time zone confusion. On the morning of October 3rd, um, uh, a coordinated raid took place uh, in several cities across India, but majority of these raids took place in New Delhi, the capital. Um, Over 100 residences were raided by the Delhi police. um, Of And these are residences of journalists uh, and former employees of the alternative and progressive news outlet, NewsClick. and they were, uh, their houses were raided. About 50 people were brought into the police station and uh, interrogated further. Um, and two individuals were arrested, uh, Prabir Purkayasa and Amit Chakraborty, who are both, um, uh, uh, Prabir is the editor-in-chief of NewsClick. Amit is one of the head administrators at NewsClick. Uh, and they're arrested under one of the most draconian and absolutely backward and ridiculous laws that exist, which is the uh, Unlawful Activities Prevention Act in India. This is a law that essentially gives the state uh, complete power and authority to violate people's civil liberties, to violate their right uh, to a fair trial. Uh, They can, uh, people under UAPA can be accused of terrorism with no kind of legal or judicial basis, no process in court. Um, And it's been used primarily by the Modi government, by the BJP government in recent years to attack not only journalists, but also human rights offenders, authors, etc. And how is this related to what we're talking about before, which is the New York Times hit piece? Well, uh, essentially, this UAPA case was uh, written up just about a week after the New York Times hit piece was released. um, And it essentially bases all of its accusations in this piece. Uh, And as I'm sure you've talked about on the show, this uh, 
piece that was uh, written by a series of New York Times journalists essentially accuses a bunch of progressive media outlets, which are anti-war, pro-working class, pro-people's movements. uh, And in addition to that, again, oppose any sort of U.S. warmongering, whether it be against China, uh, whether it be against uh, all of the uh, any of the conflicts that the U.S. is uh, is really pursuing across the world. Um, And it essentially accuses these outlets of being a web and network of uh, Chinese propaganda because they received funds from a benefactor who is an American citizen who happens to live in China. Um, And because of this uh, very, very thin line connection, they say, and this means that all of these outlets, which do so many things, which write about um, progressive movements, uh, which speak to people in these movements, uh, which speak out against the war, oppose imperialist propaganda, um, they're all... Actually, their entire function is just to be uh, uh, mouthpieces for the Chinese state, which is completely ridiculous. There is absolutely no evidence uh, for this. And then in this raid, which took place again on the morning of October 3rd, this New York Times hit piece is essentially the only evidence that's provided to say that, yes, we can charge these people under this horrific anti-terror law. Um, because the New York Times said that they are Chinese spies. And that's going against the Indian government, that's going against uh, et cetera. And what's interesting is that um, in the interrogations of all of these different journalists, contractors, designers, uh, there was even comedians that were questioned, cartoonists. Um, the main questions, uh, you know, of course they ask uh, about funding, that's the kind of their main motive, but the majority of these questions were, did you cover the Anti-Citizenship Amendment Act protest, which took place in India in 2020? Did you cover the uh, the farmers' protest? Did you cover how India handled the COVID-19 pandemic, which for people who weren't paying attention, India had maybe the worst handling of the COVID-19 pandemic in the world, and the estimate of total dead is somewhere in the millions, even though that's not the official number that they'll share. Um, and essentially interrogating people to see if they've ever written anything bad about uh, the horrific human rights record of the Modi government. So the New York Times are actually the ones acting on behalf of a foreign state government. That's, they seem to take up that part. Even in this hit piece, they mentioned that NewsClick had already been under investigation and targeted by Indian authorities. So this, this raid that took place uh, on October 3rd, again, was not um, the first time Newsweek has been raided. It has been consistently targeted because it has been covering these crucial struggles in India, um, because it has been on the front line speaking to people who are mobilizing, who are demanding their rights, demanding their dignity. And that's why they've been consistently targeted. And even when the New York Times mentions that Newsweek is uh, one of the, the many organizations that's received funds uh, it says that they're also currently being investigated uh, and it's part of this persecution from the Indian government. So they seem to acknowledge that this is part of the MO uh, and that it has been in connection to these funds because essentially even groups like uh, Oxfam International uh, have been investigated by the Indian government. BBC have been investigated and accused of you know all sorts of things. Oxfam had its funding completely cut. So it's any any sort of organization is not safe from these these attacks. Saying that you can't receive foreign funding, that if you receive money from anyone outside of India, 
then you're going to be acting on the agenda of someone else. And New York Times clearly knew this, mentioned this, and then uh, it is now essentially serving as the uh, sole evidence in these this ridiculous um, crusade against noble journalists in India. It's just so disgusting because all the things that they allege about others, then using that logic, these people are working on behalf of uh, the Indian government. They're facilitating India's crackdown on uh, independent journalists. Yeah, I think it's so important to remind them that actually journalists have a responsibility and that uh, you can't just tell lies and expect there to be no consequences. And the consequences in this case are two journalists who are in prison, are a hundred colleagues who have been had their house raided, have had their laptops and phones seized, who have been, you know, terrorized Uh, scared. These are people who are young as 20 years old, who, you know, have never really uh, experienced something like this before. And this is, again, I mean, it's also because of the Indian government and because they're cracking down on journalists, but the New York Times is playing a huge role in this and to not acknowledge that. And they even ran a piece today about the raid. And they even acknowledged that it was their own piece that in part motivated this. You see these right-wing figureheads like Amit Shah using the New York Times piece, it was all over Indian media, just serving as this uh, complete legitimate, uh, kind of legitimizing everything that they had wanted to do. They want to call left journalists uh, agents. They want to say they're anti-national when they're really the people who are fighting for the Indian working class, for the future, you know, for people to be able to live in this country. So it, it can be a country that's not destroyed by climate change, destroyed by corporate greed, destroyed by these people who are only thinking of uh, the most wealthy and the most privileged in the country. Yeah, and here they have it. I just want to show that article that they actually, uh, where they kind of acknowledge their role, not in an at all apologetic way, just as if it was uh, an appropriate thing to do. Uh, Let's see. So we have... New Delhi police raid homes and offices of journalists. The sweep caught up the founder and contributors of a left-leaning news website, according to other news outlets and those raided. A Times investigation had linked the site to a pro-China network. Yeah. So. I hope they're happy. Hope they're happy. Hope they're happy. That's so disgusting. And again, all of this is guilt by association. There's never any evidence of anything criminal the most that they can do is kind of try to insinuate these like orientalist, racist smears against people that are so reminiscent of the Cold War and the McCarthy era. Yeah. And it's like they don't understand why people wouldn't want war with China or why they wouldn't why they would want the truth about what's happening. And it's like it's not you don't have to be influenced by a foreign government to know that war is not a good thing. Right. It's projection because these people are such mercenaries that they can't imagine having an idea that wasn't either popular or monetarily compensated. And here, again, just looking at their actual coverage of it, again, two months ago, the New York Times published an investigation that connected NewsClick to an international network that funds pro-China propaganda, along with other material. Ms. Christian said that the Times coverage of NewsClick and the funding network had left her concerned that the Modi government would weaponize the story as an excuse, as a pretext for fresh attacks on journalists who are doing very important work. And of course, she was right. So yeah, shout out to the Times. I mean, I wonder what it was like for them to write that, to add that in there. Yeah, it can't have, I mean, 
how many times have they have they paved the way for war crimes that then they and and inevitably have to cover? It's one of many, I think. Yeah. Well, they really help create this story. We should give them credit for that. Give them some props for that. Well, anything else that you want to make sure we know about? Anything we can do to support these journalists? We'll keep uh, following NewsClick, follow People's Dispatch. We're going to be giving updates about what's happening. There's going to be, we're going to be launching a statement for journalists, uh, communicators, and media houses to sign on to. We really need all your support. It's so important to stand with our colleagues at this point. Um, an attack against one is an attack against all. Um, and we can't stay silent uh, when people are being uh, criminalized for the act of telling the truth. Um, and that the journalism that the people at NewsClick are doing is such brave and important journalism. We have to be paying attention to the farmer struggles in India. We have to be paying attention uh, to the bold uh, trade unions who are organizing in the face of uh, you know, labor rights being taken away during the pandemic. There's just so much uh, that, that, these jour- that we have to be grateful to these journalists for uncovering and for telling and for really doing it in the spite of so much repression. And so I really encourage people to check out NewsClick, check out People's Dispatch, which we'll be covering in a consistent way what's happening on the ground there. And where can people find People's Dispatch? At People's Dispatch on all platforms and peoplesdispatch.org. Are you on Twitter? Yes, at Zoe Pepper C. Okay, Zoe Pepper C. We'll put in the description. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.